Our scripture lessons today are found in Jeremiah 12, the first one, which if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a pew Bible there in the rack in front of you, and in the bulletin are the page numbers in the pew Bible where these passages may be found. Jeremiah 12, we're going to read the first 13 verses. Jeremiah 12 occurs fairly early on in Jeremiah's ministry. But we want to look at it today. Ted and Wanda, you're on the wrong side of the church. You belong over there. I'm all messed up now. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Jeremiah, we're going to look at it because he has a complaint against God. And uh, we'll see what he says, and, and God's going to respond to him. So it's a very, I hope, instructive passage for us. So listen here to God's word. Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are those who deal in treachery at ease? You have planted them. They have also taken root. They grow. They have even produced fruit. You are near to their lips, but far from their mind. But you know me, O Lord. You see me, and you examine my heart's attitude toward you. Drag them off like sheep for the slaughter, and set them apart for a day of carnage. How long is the land to mourn, and the vegetation of the countryside to wither, for the wickedness of those who dwell in it? Animals and birds have been snatched away, because men have said, he will not see our latter ending. God responds, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? For even your brothers in the household of your father Even they have dealt treacherously with you. Even they have cried aloud after you. Do not believe them, although they may say nice things to you. I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. Is my inheritance like a speckled bird of prey to me? Are the birds of prey against her on every side? Go, gather all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. It has been made a desolation. Desolate, it mourns before me. The whole land has been made desolate because no man lays it to heart. On all the bare heights in the wilderness, destroyers have come. For a sword of the Lord is devouring from one end of the land even to the other. There is no peace for anyone. They have sown wheat and have reaped thorns. They have restrained themselves to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Amen. Our gospel reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. It's the, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll read verses 15 to 23. Jesus is speaking, 
And he has words of instruction, words of warning. Listen here again to God's word. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Amen. And our epistle reading is from the book of Hebrews, the 12th chapter. We'll read the first 13 verses here as well. This passage comes after Hebrews 11, obviously, but Hebrews 11, you should remember, is that great long listing of Old Testament saints, heroes of the faith, and uh, the things they've gone through, the things that have happened to them, and uh, how they lived for God in the face of opposition, and uh, were faithful. So now, the apostle makes an application to Christians. How should this affect us seeing what has happened with the Old Testament saints. So listen here to God's word. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to this Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Gracious God, we come and ask for you to take your word and put it in our hearts and our lives in such a way that we are fed and nurtured, we're corrected and directed, that, Lord, we are encouraged and imparted with your grace so that we might live for you. For we know that we're your workmanship, that we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, things which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So help us this day through your word that's been read and your word that will be preached. We ask this so that your name may be praised in our lives and all the world around us. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, do you ever argue with God? I always think that everyone should argue with God. We need to ask, why are things the way they are? Most everyone does, I think, argue with God. How explicitly is it's a different issue, but uh, I think a good example of this is, if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, and who hasn't seen it because it shows on television, you know, 17 times a week, certain times of the year. And, you know, remember Lieutenant Dan? Lieutenant Dan had an argument with God because his life was messed up. He had, here's how it's going to go. And he was going to die in Vietnam, right? And he did it. Old Forrest saved him. And he's all upset. He, he argues with God. And his argument was with God, and that's good, and it gets resolved. It's a good thing. Jeremiah is in a similar situation. He's early on in his prophetic ministry, maybe five years, a decade, something like that. He has a couple decades to go yet. And things aren't quite the way he thought they would be. And he wants to argue with God, question God about what's going on. And I think he argues with God very well. He does a good job. And so let's consider it. So the first, we have a slide up here, a good way to argue with God. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, A good way to argue with God. Start, like Jeremiah did, by making a positive affirmation. Some attribute of God that's right, that's the one that's in question. With Jeremiah, he says, righteous are you, O Lord. That's a statement. Lord, you're righteous. So that's how he begins. He doesn't say you're unrighteous, he says you're righteous. And because you are righteous, I got some questions I want to raise to you. Uh, Lieutenant Dan said, God, you're in control. Well, I got some questions if you're in control, right? So he, at least he was there. So when you argue about these things, argue with God. But argue based on his attributes, who he is, what, what all is ascribed to him, and, and say, I don't know if that's the case or not. Now, the attribute of God that you may have an argument with him about or what a question about, it could be his omniscience, could be his power, 
could be his loving kindness and mercy. If you're loving, kind, and merciful, how this? It could be uh, about his righteousness. How can I think that you're a righteous and good God? That's what it is here with, with Jeremiah. And then as you do this, define your question. Uh, what Jeremiah says, uh, indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. See how clear that is? I know that you're righteous, but I would discuss matters of justice. I need to to find some things out. This has to do with ethical accountability. Is there true justice, God? Are you righteous? I don't know. Looks a a lot different to me. It could be you say, Lord, your sovereignty reigns over all. You control all things. So how can this be? I need to talk about this with you. It doesn't, it's not clear to me at all. It could be that, Lord, you're all powerful, and yet look at the things that are happening. Look at that. If you're all powerful, you ought to do something about that, I'd think. Whatever it is, lay the question out and define it clearly, which Jeremiah does. I want to discuss matters of justice with you. That's the the problem. And then he states the question clearly. Specifically, it's this. Why have the wicked prospered? Isn't that good? Just lay it right out there. Matters of justice. You're righteous. But if that's the case, why is it that the wicked prosper? The way of the wicked prosper. Why? How can that be true? It's a real issue for him. He knows these people aren't good, they're doing bad, and yet they flourish. They seem to get stronger, they seem to get better. All things seem to be at ease with them. It's a little bit like the psalmist in Psalm 23, or Psalm 73, pardon me. Uh, how can these things be if you're a just God? And it, it doesn't make any sense. You might have questions, I've had questions. Well, God, why do you allow Christians to be persecuted. When ISIS was rolling through the Middle East, they were crucifying Christians, cutting off heads and putting them on poles around the villages. God, how can you allow those things to happen if you are who you say you are? God, if you're God, how come there's disease? You know, disease that are hard and difficult. How can, why is that? Why does my child have this congenital problem? Born a particular way. God, if you're God, how can that be? You've never asked questions like that? You should, because we all have issues in our lives that come out like that. And we wonder, and the place to go is to God. To argue with him, to question him, to find out. My big question today, I mean, when I say today, I mean in this current period of time, is God, 
why can't people see clearly? How come people believe something that's so obviously false on the face of it? Things that are true have been there all along. Why, why, why do you allow that? How does that happen? You're the God of light and truth. And then you state your question clearly, but then you describe the matter specifically. Here's what he says. You're on their lips, but not in their minds. They say all these things about God. But those are just superficial, hypocritical things they're saying because their hearts, their minds are far from you. Why do I have this disease? Why is this happening in my life or someone else's life near me? Why, God, are these things going on? And describe specifically what it is. And for me, the one I just used as an example, Lord, why is it that people think that we're not in a sexual binary? That there's male and female and no more. I, I still don't understand why people would not think that. I mean, as much as you may want to do things, but it's there. And then Jeremiah makes a personal confession. He says, I'm not like that. He's not wicked. Now, he's a sinner and all those things, but he's not wicked. Jeremiah is committed to walking in the ways of God. He says, that's, that's what I want to do. That's where I'm going to go. That's who I am. He seeks to walk in God's ways truly. He says, you know me, examine my heart. See what's there. We say to God, Lord, I didn't desire any of this. I didn't ask for this. I don't want this. I'm not insisting that I be in charge, but I have questions. So examine me. See what's there. Speak to me. We should say that to God. Nothing wrong with that. And then Jeremiah does something else. He calls for vengeance. He says, drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of carnage. And I would say that Jeremiah is on dangerous ground there. That's a difficult place to be. And those are difficult sentiments to express in a righteous fashion. And we know we've all been tempted to say that very thing, right? I mean, yeah. He wants ethical justice. He wants the scales of justice to be balanced. Not 
all the other way. And they deserve this. Now, at the bottom of it, he's right. People who do wickedly deserve the judgment of God. But to have that notion in your mind and to give expression to it the way that Jeremiah does here can easily deteriorate into something else, to just personal vengeance. Don't you appreciate the confession of sin that we use occasionally from Martin Luther, we try to use it once a month, that says, uh, as for my enemies, my adversaries, I don't ask for you to judge them. I, I wish that they be saved like us. That's the way to pray. So while this is right at the bottom and easily deteriorates, so never stop praying for or desiring the conversion of the wicked or of your enemies or of your opponents. Pray for them in a good way. Don't say just, Lord, take them off to slaughter. Say, Lord, I pray for XYZ person and I ask you to, to be merciful to them, to guide them, to, to help them. Do, though, pray against their schemes and actions. If they're doing things that are wrong, if they're scheming things, if you, know, you can pray, Lord, don't, don't let uh, injustice occur. Don't let uh, scoundrels do these sorts of things. If they're in some kind of action, stop their action. Bring it to light. Bring it to mind. Help them stop that. We can pray for healing and insight when we don't we have diseases and things upon us or we have things we don't see very clearly. But we can pray for, for, for healing and for insight, but we don't want to push too hard. If we push too hard, insist on this, we can get the wrong solutions. We can end up in heresy and error trying to manipulate God or manipulate truths about God. So. Hold your things there, push on that, but don't push too hard. We say, what are examples of that? Again, I'll do one with healing and I'll do something else. Uh, with healing to say, it's the name it and claim it. And the example I can use is my good friend, Arnie Quallen, professor of art at Purdue University. Uh, he was early on, he, had, he wore glasses and he knew that God was healer. And he knew that he didn't want to wear glasses. He wanted to glorify God. So he said, God, I'm going to take these glasses. I'm going to throw them in a Wabash River, which runs right through the, by the Purdue campus. I'm going to believe that you heal me. So he threw them in the river and claimed healing. And for the next 20 years, he had to use a glass like this to read. We'd be sitting around in the Bible study, he'd pull that thing out and start reading. He couldn't drive. His wife had to take him everywhere he went. Now, he did this for 20 years. I mean, he believed. But he was in error. Eventually, he put his glasses back on. He said, God, I may have pushed a little hard on that. Now, again, this is looking back, but you can see where... Uh, 
Well, I won't go there. We'll, but yeah, we'll stop. Uh, we can end up in heresy where we try to make God in some way that he's not. Remember the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? By Rabbi Kushner? That same question comes up every two or three years. It's described in other ways, but that's a good, a good way to, to put it. Why do bad things happen to good people? Do you know what his solution was? He got it resolved. That's why I say you don't want to push too hard. He said, well, the reason is, is that God's not in control. God, does, God doesn't control everything. There are some things beyond his control. And we just have to accept that. We say, well, no, that's wrong. That's error. God does. And God has his reasons. And we may not, they may not be as clear to us as we would prefer. But we don't want to say God's not in control because then we, we distort who God is. And you could do this with a variety of other questions and arguments we have with God where we get an answer that we think satisfies us in some way. But it mars it disfigures who God is. And so our perpetual question is, Lord, how long? We say there are real consequences. It says, uh, put on up there, Herb, the next one. Our land has become desolate. Because these things are going on, our land has become desolate. How long, O Lord, shall this continue? Uh, we say there are root causes, and the root cause is this. They think you do not or will not see their end. You don't know really what's going on. So what happens here is that people say there's no God, and so there's no ethical boundaries, and so there's moral anarchy. That's what Jeremiah is living in the midst of. People had made God just a placeholder, didn't acknowledge him, we'll do whatever we want, and there was moral anarchy, people doing whatever they would, would prefer. People dismiss the God of the Bible. Well, may I say to you that we're by nature, because we're made in the image of God, we're religious. And so people will find some other religion, some other God or gods to turn to. Don't go there. There's only one true living God who's revealed himself in the scriptures, who's come and dwelt among us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't go that way. It leads to the dismissal of God. So I would suggest that's a good way to question or argue with God. Be honest. Make, make sure you're arguing with God that you say who he is, some attribute of his that's called into question. State your reasons. Say specifically, here's what I want to know. And lay it all out. That's a good way to argue with God. So away with that, Herb. We're done with that. God answers Jeremiah and us, right? Herb, you got that one? Apparently, it will be coming soon. God answers Jeremiah, do we have that one? And us? We do? Ha! Oh, they put it, the first one up. I was, I was gonna have just the, the title there. Uh, so here's, God, here's what God says. Now, if you had all this stuff, uh, you heard this, you think, well, God, please be sorry for Jeremiah. He's in a tough spot. Oh, Lord, be merciful to him. 
Did you hear what God said? If you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down the land of peace, what are you going to do in the thicket of the Jordan? He says, you think this is tough? There are thickets ahead. Boy. <laughs> you know, that's what God says. That's his answer. He doesn't answer all those things, but he says, here's what's going on. Uh, Jeremiah receives a bracing reply, is what I would say. He said, you think this has been easy? And then he goes on and he talks about how the fact that his family is going to act treacherously toward him. You think this is bad? Your own family is going to betray you. Now, he, had a, he came from a family of priests, and I think what that means is they're, they're going to line up on the side of the traditional priests against the teaching of Jeremiah. We know that decades later, when Jeremiah is told by God to go buy a piece of land, redeem a piece of land, he has to send Baruch to do it rather than some member of his family. Now, there's hardly anything worse than betrayal or treachery by a loved one. He says, you're going to experience that. God knew it. Now, the problem is this. God has vision for us. I have a vision for you, Jeremiah. He says, if you've run with footmen, that is with human beings, run with them, they've tired you out. Well, you know, I have a vision for you to run with horses. Yeah. You're going to be in a place where you're going to have to run with horses, and I expect you, I have a vision for you to be able to compete and do well and be victorious in the midst of that. Now, I don't know that he's going to run with horses in a literal sense, but he meant all that human strength has. That's what horses stand for, right? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. We will remember the name of our God, Psalm 20. Where is it? Uh, Psalm 33, a horse is a false hope for victory. It brings help to no one, ultimately. He says, you're going to have to run with horses. He says that not just land that's clear and even, but you're going to have to run through thickets. Little did he know that ahead lay Babylon, under siege, the land like that for over a decade, people taken away in to other places. So God has a vision for Jeremiah. We can say the same thing for us. You know, things that happen in our lives, things that cause us such great distress, God has a vision for what he wants to accomplish in and through us. He has things he wants to accomplish in and through nations around the world. We wonder about their distress and we don't know, but God has vision. He has a project that he's working on. Uh, God even had vision and purpose for Pharaoh. Negative, but purpose. He used him for his own purposes. So how do we, how do we catch this vision that God has? We want to turn to our Hebrew text and it says something that is extraordinarily important. What do we do? Fix your eyes on Jesus. It says, therefore, laying aside
every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. We need to do that. What do you mean fix your eyes on Jesus? In Jesus, all the promises of God are yea and amen. They're all fulfilled in Him. What do you see when you see Jesus? If you fix your eyes on Jesus, consider Him and all of what He's done, what's happened there, you hear and see just what Jeremiah hears from God. The rest of that, uh, God's answer to Jeremiah says how God Himself laments what's going on. He, he's not an unfeeling, he weeps, yet these people are wicked, and he says there's going to come judgment there. Jesus came, uh, and he wept, he cried, he ministered among people, but he knew he had to do that in order to win redemption for his own. And ultimately, God gives himself for our redemption. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God come in the flesh to do for us what could not be done otherwise, to give himself for our life, for our forgiveness, for our new life in Christ. And why did Jesus do this? We didn't finish the text here. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endures the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Says this is exactly what Jesus did. He believed God. He knew that God had vision and purpose for him. He wanted to do the work of God. Yes, it was painful. We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if it be possible, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now that joy has come full pleasure. He's there at the right hand of the throne of God. So we need to know this, know that God is good. What it says here in Hebrews 12 is that if God disciplines you, know that he who disciplines you is good. He's not an arbitrary, mean, or vicious God. He says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. God deals with us as with sons, just like our fathers do. Now they do it for a time that seems best to them, but he does it for our good, that we may share his holiness, that we may share something of the, the fullness of God. God's good. We need to recognize that. Discipline is a sign of love. It says if you have no discipline going on in your life, it's a sign that you're an illegitimate child and no son. So where does we find that in the Bible? Romans 1, right? When God gave them over to do whatever they wanted. He said, go ahead, I'm tired. Go ahead, do whatever you want. And they headed off into the judgment of God. False prophets will come. They'll say all sorts of things. In due time, though, they'll be shown for what they are. And again, we read that passage from Matthew 7 that talks about that. And God does all things well. Uh, well, he got a little bit of heaven, but he does all things well that we might share his holiness, for we are his workmanship. 
created in Christ Jesus, he's working on us. So these things that are so hard and difficult for us, that's him working in our hearts and minds. So he tells us, verse 11 of chapter 12, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is, all will be well. That was true for Jeremiah. He had decades to go, but you know, he's the one through whom the great promise of the new covenant came. In Jeremiah 31, we read that a few weeks ago. He's the one who promised that the land would again be inhabited and would be fruitful. And, and he went and he was faithful all along, and he had a great presence and ministry of God to him all through his life long. All will be well. So hold on to Hebrews 12, 11, and look for that peaceful fruit of righteousness, God's benevolent blessing upon us. And so then, what are we to do? Attend to your soul, get fit. Fix the limb which is out of joint. Make straight paths for your feet. I would say this, make sure that you do not lose ooh, the ethical dimensions of life. Distinguish between works righteousness and sanctification. Works righteousness is where we think that we can somehow earn God's favor by the good things that we do and he'll save us. Whereas sanctification is our living for God because he has saved us and we want to be more and more and more like him because we're his. Distinguished between those. But life will always have an ethical dimension. Make sure you don't try and throw that away or change it where it should be. So the whole point here is don't grow weary and lose heart. Isn't that what it says here? For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Instead, we get fit. We have reservoirs to call upon, places to go in the presence of God that help us, that comfort us. We ask questions, and He assures us of His presence. He doesn't always give us answers that we're, to that specific question. Job never got his questions answered, but he got more than his questions answered, as it were. Likewise, we, let's get fit. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's walk before God with all the grace and strength that He gives, and let's believe that He's good, and that he'll do good in us. Amen.